Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we welcome to the show a literary manager and producer who started her career as a PA on The Dark Knight, went on to work for Mosaic Media and Atlas Entertainment before forming the delightfully named Scooty Whoop Entertainment in 2009 with partner Mary Cybriski, where they rep a slate of up-and-coming screenwriters and filmmakers and have a producing slate that includes the upcoming Joe Dante film Burying the X, which premieres at this year's Venice Film Festival, the Sylvester Stallone dramedy Reach Me due out later this year, and Sticky Notes, the Ray Liotta Rose Leslie drama set for March of 2015. She's the Scooty and Scooty Whoop, Miss Frankie Lindquist. Welcome to the podcast, Frankie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I want to start the show with asking you how you got started in the industry. I know you were a PA on The Dark Knight, but also what inspired you to work in Hollywood? Um, I've always really liked storytelling, actually, and I found at a very young age that not only would I like to create my own kind of stories, um, but my father always told me that I should write a book. And something that he also said um, when I was growing up was that if you love what you do, you never really work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. And um, I really took that to heart. And so while everyone else was like, you know how tough it is to like break through Hollywood and all this kind of stuff. I never really paid attention to any of that. It was like some sort of Jaws mentality where it's like, I'm going to do this. Um, and so I basically saw a cattle call for extras in the newspaper to um, work on this movie called The Breakup. And I went there and I made friends with some of the people behind the scenes and then started working as a PA where I got the job on The Dark Knight. Um, oh. So I guess initially I was just following my heart. Very cool. I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, where did the name Scooty Whoop Entertainment come from? My son loves the name of your company. Uh, my son is one years old, but he is thrilled by the name. So where did you come up with it? Um, thanks. <laughs> Thank you to him as well. <laughs> actually, um, my partner and I worked at Atlas, um, which is where I actually met Mary. And mm-hmm. before we were actually thinking of, you know, running with our own thing, we just wanted something to protect of our projects on and so we were thinking of names that we could register as an LLC um, and Scooty Whoop is a phrase. <laughs> I suppose it was always supposed to be Scooty Woot when people are like Woot Woot. Right. But um, I don't know every time a spec would sell I would essentially like yell down the hallways at Atlas like Scooty Whoop all you need is kill just build the Warner Brothers for one million against three and it was like <laughs> this little playful announcement. <laughs> so when I was Thinking of names, we'd sent an email out, and I was like thinking top drawer, top shelf. I wanted it to sound classy, but somehow right. that sounded like alcohol sales. And um, <laughs> one of the one of the execs over there said, "Why don't you just call it Skitty Loop?" And then so it was. <laughs> and it became what it is today. Now your partners at Scooty Whoop with Mary Sabrisky. You you mentioned how you met, but how did what made you decide to partner up? Honestly. The fact that both of us were, like, very driven, and um, we thought that maybe at the time there might not have been as much room for growth um, at the company that we were at. And so we realized pretty quickly that we could maximize off of one another's um, strengths because we're very similar as far as taste and material goes, but um, a bit different on personality. And so, like, her greatest strengths are what. I like happen to be lacking in a little bit. And some of my greatest strengths are um, something that, you know, I can make up for on her end. And somehow it became this like really great working partnership and has like blossomed into something that is not only um, we're great business partners, but also like exceptionally great friends. Mm -hmm. I heard uh, that 
the old partnership between Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer was very similar. Don was the passion marketing idea guy, and and Jerry Bruckheimer was really the hands and nuts and bolts guy uh, of yeah. making production. Uh, obviously, Don Simpson passed away, and Bruckheimer's obviously had a fantastic career since. But I heard that, that it was a sort of a similar similar relationship, I guess, to yours and Mary's. So yeah, cool. we um we actually saw Jerry speak at the producers conference last year, and he was saying the story, and we were looking at each other like, wow, that's um. 100% sounds just like us. What's the partnership with Mary like? You say you guys have similar taste in material, but sort of different skill sets. Do you work together on everything, including clients? Or is there like a division in the workload with each of you taking on different tasks? How, how does that work with you guys? Um, we do. We, we like Everything is essentially like 50-50. We do divide the work in a way where um, I guess I primarily focus on um, the producing side of things. Mm-hmm. And she works a lot more on the day-to-day with the clients. But when it comes to reading a client script and giving notes, we both give um, notes on that script. So the client gets two different kinds of perspectives. Um, and if there's a note that we have to, like, basically we say, argue me, you know, like, tell me why you're, you think that this way is better. Um, and we usually come to a really great consensus with the client. And so they enjoy the additional perspective on that. Um, but primarily, we both read every script that we produce. We both have to sign on board to all of that kind of stuff, but I'll filter that out while she'll filter out um, the majority of like the incoming submissions for you know client representation and things like that. Mm-hmm. How many clients approximately do you guys rep, and how are you able to manage that with again as much producing work? Because it's it's hard to get a movie made. Period, and you guys have I think three at last count going you know in various states of production post production right now. How would you divide your time? How are you able to find the time? Um, well, for example, um, on Reach Me, luckily we shot that film in California. Mm-hmm. And I was on set primarily then, and we were shooting at night. And if I were running, um, if I had to do both things, then I would have to be up all night running the set. And then during the day, all day, um, interfacing with agents and doing things like that. But luckily she was able to take like the daytime stuff. Mm. Um, so I was able to get some sleep. Um, so that was really, really helpful um, and having a partner during that time. Sure. And I think that as we start to grow, hopefully we'll be able to expand the company and be able to like dictate a bit of the work towards um, other things right. and right. other people. We ask this from time to time from different reps, but I haven't asked it in a while. So can you explain to aspiring screenwriters what lit managers do that agents don't and vice versa and why it benefits writers to have both an agent and a manager? So managers primarily are um, the day-to-day. They help cultivate the career. They help do, you know, notes after notes um, with the clients on getting that script ready to send to an agent. Because once the agent receives it, usually, um, some agents are more hands-on than others, but usually once an agent receives a script, that script should be at its best possible form so they're able to make a sale as soon as they're able to, like, shoot it out. Um, agents primarily very much sell the stuff that the manager and the client, you know, generate. And it's very important, I think, to have both because if you have a manager, you're able to present the best work to your agent and not always agents will sign a client if they're not able to, um, essentially make a sale or if they don't see any monetizing potential at that moment, um, in which, Managers can help them get introduced around town and things like that so they can secure an agent and start really cultivating material and sending it through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know this is going to be sort of a, a broad question because it obviously depends on the case. But when is a writer ready 
foreign agent? What do they have to have in their arsenal? Who makes that sort of call between you and, and, and clients? But when is a writer ready to get an agent? Um, I think when they have something that they're that speaks um, volumes for their best work. And it always helps if they have an additional sample because if for some reason they're on um, the edge of getting signed by that agent or the agent might just be hip-pocketing them or whatever, if they have another piece of material that like, is equally as strong, mm-hmm. they have a better shot um, at doing whatever. That being said, numerous screenwriters get signed immediately off of like one agent finding a script and then making a sale um, because they definitely want to represent that sale. Mm-hmm. Now, this is another question we get asked frequently, and surprisingly, we get varied answers. How important for you is it for an aspiring screenwriter to be based in Los Angeles? And if they're not local, what do you recommend to aspiring writers in terms of a course of action? Well, I think it's very um, it's very important if you want to be um, working in Hollywood to embrace the Hollywood kind of lifestyle, which, I mean, you can, essentially you can write wherever in the world. Um, and you can reach out because now with like the new mediums of technology, step, there's many more ways to send a script. But the real value in living in Los Angeles is the fact that you can actually cultivate relationships with some of the executives that are going to be reading your material in the future or reading your material at the moment. Um, and if you're friends with someone, usually they'll put you at the top of their writer's list. They'll put you at the top of their, you know, let's bring this person in for this like um, IP that we already have to see if they want to like adapt it or whatever. You really get an opportunity to strengthen the relationships that you can make. And since this town is primarily based on relationships, I feel like it's very important for somebody to like interface with people that they want to do business with every day. Right. And, and speaking of that kind of stuff, um, in terms of referrals, uh, contacts, connections, again, for those writers out there who don't understand why a referral is so important um, and relationships in general in the industry, can you explain, again, why a referral makes such a big difference for you as a manager getting a writer by referral as opposed to, again, just getting a random query? Right. If, um, if someone who I know, who I've read before, who has maybe sent me a project for some executive and I, it's like their taste, or even if it's just a friend of mine who I really admire, um, because they have that relationship, if they refer someone to me who I don't know, I'm much more apt to read that because I know that they already like that project and whether or not they like it to bring it into their company or like it to produce it or like it because they can make a sale or maybe this person is just their friend, but they're not going to give it to other people who are professional in the business because they want to also, every, every time they send a script to someone, put their best foot forward. Um, and so usually when you get something that is from another executive or a friend who's like within the industry, chances are that that content is pretty good. Um, so those kind of referrals, or it's possible that that exec had helped that writer um, develop the material, but that exec definitely has already read it and has um, thought it was good enough to pass on to like whoever they send it to. So that speaks volumes for um, getting the script to the top of the pile. Right. Here's a reader question that I had gotten that I wanted to throw your way. What are some suggestions for keeping in touch with interested agents and managers while you are working on your script? And I think what they mean by that is if they had sent uh, a logline or pitched something to an agent or manager and it sounded interesting while they're working on that script to keep the, that agent or manager interested and or this is another side note, um, if perhaps they had sent a draft of a script and you liked the concept, but the draft wasn't quite up to par. Again, 
do you have any suggestions for being able to sort of keep in touch but not being pestering, but keeping that interest level up? Yeah, it's a very, very fine line. Cause a, lot, a lot of times, you don't want to send them this long email being like, oh, I'm not ready, but these are the other things that I've been up to. Um, they have a lot of things to get through every single day and a lot of emails. So if you send something that's one or two sentences once in a while, but definitely make sure that you're moving like the project forward because you don't want to end up empty-handed at the end of the day. Just a small email saying that, you know, I know you were interested in this. Maybe um, I just wanted to let you know that it will be here if you have any TA of one. Um, you'll be ready with the material, I suppose, but that email should not come every single week. It depends on how long you have to develop it, I suppose. Right. And another reader had asked, in terms I would of... honestly say for that question, sure, go sure. with your gut. Yeah. You know, okay. you know, when like you should be able to feel when you're being a bit too abrasive. <laughs> right. Um, and you should be able to like gauge by what their replies to you are. Right. Whether it was in the past or the thank you note that you send after the meeting. Thank you so much. It was nice to meet with you. You know, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You can kind of gauge by their replies. Right. But another writer did ask, is there a sort of age discrimination against writers? And what if you're a writer who's over 40 or 50 or even 60? Do you have any sort of suggestions for how they should sort of approach their queries and things? Um, not really, because the script usually, I can't tell how old someone is by just reading their script mm-hmm. unless they're trying to write completely outside of their bracket. Um, for example, if like someone's a bit older and they use language like um, spectacles instead of glasses, those are like surefire signs that maybe they, you know, have, I don't know, perhaps an elevated like vocabulary or um, maybe they're a little bit, I don't know, um, older. But usually you can't tell mm-hmm. um, when someone writes if the script is good, the script is good. And there are always like those little changes that you can make if it does seem a little bit outdated. Mm-hmm. Um and that being said, a lot of people who are younger write about topic matters that they don't necessarily understand correctly or fully yet. Um, but I think as long as the script is good, it really doesn't matter. People are just looking for good stories. Now, the age is nothing but a number. Right. Uh, well, that's good to hear. Now, I'm not going to ask you what kind of material you like, but I will ask you, what are some of your favorite films of all time? Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's a tough question. I very much like, you know, I like the epics, like your brave hearts. Mm-hmm. Um, so as a comedy, I very much like how to lose a guy in 10 days. Mm-hmm. Liked it for the last like 15 years. Um, cause I can watch it over and over and every time I laugh about something new in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just for pure enjoyment. I love silver linings playbook. I thought it was very, um, important and beautiful and one of the best films that like can bring attention to, um, a subject matter that, quite frankly, we need to help, like, I don't know, we're supposed to get help from the media to destigmatize, you know? So I thought that was really important and a beautiful film. Mm-hmm. Other than a great script, what can make a prospective writer client stand out from the crowd? Probably personality. Uh-huh. Somebody who, especially if you're, for example, a television writer, if you meet with people and they want to hang out with you again, chances are they are going to want to hang out with you in the writer's room. So that's very, I think, especially for television, um, very important, but also for film. Because, I mean, the goal and I think everything is to work with your friends. And so if you can make relationships, and I'm not saying make everybody your best friend, because it's a lot of work. But if you can at least, like, find the good people that you want to, like, rework with, um, then those good people will introduce you to other good execs and other good people. And it's just, like, 100% um, a networking game at that point. 
And if you have the material to back you up, um, and see, you know, that six lines for your talent, that's kind of like how you can fill your web of contacts in Hollywood. Everything is essentially one degree of separation or six. Right. You can find one. <laughs> um, now, what sort of advice do you give to new clients on how to prepare for meet and greets and, and what to expect in pitch meetings and that kind of thing? Um, I try and tell them to be as comfortable as possible because if a writer goes into a room, I think I feel that the execs, at least I can when a writer comes into the room and pitch for us on like film projects and things like that, um, I can tell when they're nervous or when they're a little bit like, I don't know, maybe afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know if like everyone can necessarily incorporate this advice, but if you go in there thinking that you're talking to someone who you're normally very comfortable talking to, um, I think that that might give you a lag up. Right. But that's also like standing in the front of a podium and like imagining everyone is naked, which I've never been able to do. <laughs> so just saying, it might not work for everyone. Right. Now, I wanted to touch on your very active producing slate. Can you talk a little bit about uh, like burying the X and how you became involved with the project? Sure. So um, I went to, I grew up in a small town um, in the suburbs of Chicago called Bartlett. And I didn't go to Bartlett High School. I went to um, a high school called Streamwood. But a lot of my friends went to Bartlett because I was in this like school within a school. (laughs) So um, my friend, who was in the same social circles um, that I was in, but never, we didn't go to class together or anything like that, had reached out to me, coincidentally on Facebook, and said that he had seen I had worked on The Dark Knight, blah, blah, blah. Um, and his name was Kyle Tkella, and he asked me to breakfast. And so we met for breakfast one morning, and he sent me the script. Um, and quite frankly, because Kyle was primarily an editor at that time, mm-hmm. I was like, okay. So I'm going to have to not just read this script to see if I like it or I want to partner up as a producer, but I'm also going to have to, if it needs like a little bit of work, um, give him constructive criticism on, criticism on it because I'd very much like to help him out. Um, so I read the script and I literally forgot I was working for about an hour and a half. Mm. And I finished it and I was like, that was so enjoyable, we have to make it. Um, and so basically I called Kyle and um, I reached out to a few of our financing contacts with Mary and we were able to um, kind of like bring the movie together with Kyle and Carl and cast it. Um, we sent the script to Voltage, and the head of Voltage loved it so much that um, they were basically like writing jokes from the script um, over the weekend. And it all kind of came together very quickly, but um, it had to because we were running up against like the holiday schedule and things like that last year. Mm-hmm. So basically fell in love with it and we fought for it. That's cool. Now, and now speaking about taking on a more active role other than uh, an advisory one of a manager, but actively sort of developing uh, in terms of the producing side, and we've gotten questions about this in the past, with managers becoming producers on clients' screenplays, sort of how that transition happens, which is what you sort of talked about, why it happens, and what, in terms of like your other films, Reach Me and Sticky Notes, how did those sort of come about, I mean, in terms of transitioning from, you know, manager to slash manager slash producer? Um, well, we were lucky enough to be um, a lot of, the, actually, a lot of the clients that we had found and a lot of the clients that we signed mm-hmm. were off, like, the Nichols, and they had written exceptional stories, but they were all from, like, the independent kind of um, realm. And so Mary and I, coming from, like, the world of Charles Roven, who did like, the Dark Knight films and was primarily doing 
like $250 million movies at the time and not $2.5 million movies. Right. Um, we had all of these scripts and we we're like, I can't sell this to a studio. I mean, maybe we can like knock on Insurge's door. They might take it. But like, quite frankly, these aren't $100 million movies. These movies should get made and these stories should get told. And so um, we kept them on the side for a reason, I suppose, because we ended up um, partnering up with a man named Cassian Ellis on um, one of the projects that we had developed internally, which is an aerial action thriller. And he read a few of our clients' other scripts, and he's like, wow, these are very good. They're, like, exceptionally high concepts. I can finance basically six of these eight with my eyes closed. And I was like, okay, well, then let's do that. So basically, we started working in the independent space so that some of these um, projects that our clients had written maybe one or two years ago, while while we couldn't do anything necessarily with them then, now we 100% can. And that's kind of turned into like the mantra of our business model. So we make clients um, or we give clients the opportunity basically to write something and become a produced screenwriter Mm -hmm. if we develop it with them. That being said, we usually enter into that as an agreement before we start rewriting the script or writing the treatment or whatever stage, you know, the project is at at the moment. Sure. Um, and we usually find from our financiers to give them a bit of incentive, some seed money, you know, so that they know that it's real and we're not just managers like doing the manager producing thing. We very awesome. much like to like, yeah, grow our clients. Even if it's just a little bit, it's something that gives them some sort of um, initiative and incentive to believe in us in more than just the management um, capacity. Right. No, awesome. It's like under the, um, I suppose that mantra, don't tell me what you're doing, show me what you've done. Right. Hopefully, <laughs> all of these writers will have produced movies in the future and they'd be able to like have their families go see their names in movie theaters and things like that. And that's super fantastic because I don't think that a lot of aspiring writers realize how hard it is to get a produced credit. I know a lot of writers who uh, have made a living at being a writer and have had nothing produced uh, on the screen yes. or, or writers who have had a number of scripts, scripts produced, but nothing that they wrote on spec. Right. So yeah, actually one of my friends is a very, very prolific um, studio screenwriter mm-hmm. and I had dinner with him and he goes, wait a minute, your first client, her movie got made. Like she's a produced screenwriter. And yeah. I was like, yeah. And at the time I didn't think that that was such a big deal, but he's like, I've made so, I've made so, so many specs, the studios and I've never had a produced screenplay before mm-hmm. he's made a lot of money but the one thing that he wants now is you know his name in movie theaters where it's something that people can oh that was your movie kind of right. thing and that is what basically got us thinking that being said if the client prefers to write and sell studio specs 100 percent, we will develop and like attack that route but we do give them the opportunity um to work with us in that capacity and at least they can make a little bit of seed money oh that's awesome um, yeah. Now, since you're so active in terms of the producing aspect of it, as a production company, do you uh, look at material from writers that aren't your client, but maybe a client of a different manager? Yes, 100%. Um, in fact, the movie we did called Sticky Notes, and sometimes we have to get very creative with it. Right. But when we find something that we very much believe in, mm-hmm. we'll fight for it. For example, um, the movie The Ray the Sticky Notes film, I actually ended up locking my financier out on a balcony with the script and I said you're not coming back in it's third floor balcony you know? like, <laughs> you're not getting down basically you're not coming back in until you read the, uh, 20 pages of this and he read it and he couldn't put it down like came in financed the whole thing overnight basically we were like down in Louisiana the next day and people were like I want to meet this these people who like locked their people out on the balcony but it has to I have to have that feeling that I know 
that it's worth fighting for because I can't just do that and have them not like it at the end of the day. That's hysterical. That's awesome. <laughs> that is true. You have to get awesome. creative. We're on Hollywood, you know? You know, for sticky notes, you definitely earned your producer credit on that one. <laughs> Thanks. you out on about it. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> and you had mentioned the nickel a few minutes ago uh, as being, you know, signing clients from, you know, nickel finalists and such. Where else, what other competitions or where other than referrals, where else do you look for clients or find clients? Yeah. Um, well, one of my very, very good friends uh, leads the blood list. And I was never really a horror um, person kind of before. But now that I know that it's a very, very big category in the independent finance realm, mm-hmm. um, very much have started like looking for scripts on there. Also, um, our mentor, Cassian, is now affiliated with the blacklist. Mm. Um, and so we find a lot of things um, off the blacklist. I very much like this company called Inktip. I think the guys who run that are great. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of personal referrals. Mm-hmm. And what makes a query stand out? Do you have any sort of query do's and don'ts when people send you queries? I would say if you can get all of your information out, that's like important. Like whether you met at a pitch fest and, you know, you're sending this to me, please say that in a sentence or... But if you send a long email that is like a page, people are very hesitant to read it. They might just read the log line. They might just read the highlighted parts if you have some of that in there. But the shorter it is, just to touch the interest, I think the better off. Because if it's a long thing, chances are a lot of execs will just skip by it. If it's short, they'll read it quickly to see if they're interested. If they're not, then they might file it away. But if they are, then you have a better shot of them writing you back. Mm -hmm. Now, what's sort of an ideal length for a query. And obviously, it, for every person, it's sort of different, meaning an extra sentence or two if they have a super interesting background. Just sort of in an ideal range of like what would be too long other than a page? I mean, is a paragraph too long? Well, I think, if you have, I think if you have credentials, mm-hmm. um, recognized credentials, you absolutely should add that in there. But I don't like people don't, the like, reps don't need to know exactly every single thing that you've ever written and which competition it's gone into. Mm-hmm. You know, pick and choose your battles wisely and pick maybe like the top three if you got into numerous competitions or whatever, but definitely um, let them know that you have other material if they wanted to, if this doesn't sound interesting to them or maybe, um, I don't know, you should say that you have alternate material, but you shouldn't necessarily list everything that you have. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, so I would say maybe a short introduction, your name, and three to five sentences. Okay, that's good. Um, now, a lot of writers, aspiring screenwriters, write their first script or one script or have only one script, and that's what they're hanging their hat on. Obviously, there are exceptions. Some people's first script is brilliant, but it's very, very, very rare. Um, and Or it could be they have written a bunch of stuff, but they only have one really, really good script. Is that a sort of deterrent for you if they have one piece of material? Not necessarily. I think it's more of a deterrent to agents than it is for managers. I mean, managers, with Mary and I, if we see um, some talent, then we try and cultivate that talent, you know, which is primarily like what managers will do with an agent. For example, I've sent um, some scripts to agents that they've immediately, and this is primarily in television, but they've immediately like loved it and wanted to like meet with the client and blah, blah, blah. But they also asked what else the client had, mm-hmm. because I imagine they get quite a bit of material every day that they may really like one script, 
And what might push them over the fence on signing a client or not is if they know that that client can generate another thing that's equally as good. So if you have two samples, because you need to know, especially in television, if you're going into that room and writing an episode a week, then you have to be able to generate good material consistently. And so that might be if you don't have a second sample um, for agents. But us, if we find a voice that we like, we will work with that person until maybe maybe we can't or it doesn't work out or we have creative differences, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But now, I don't know. Once we find something we like, we try and blossom that person's talent. Okay. If they don't have another sample that's just as good. Right. Well, that's good to know. Now, a lot of reps talk about a unique voice. They're looking for a unique voice in the script that makes them stand out. But, you know, sort of what that means is sort of this amorphous concept. What is a unique voice in terms of on the written page? I think it's someone who can take a story, a general story, mm-hmm. and bring a lot of new, fresh, interesting ideas to it, but still be able to maintain it being um, a story and a movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know, they say there are only seven stories out there in the whole world, so everything is basically a refresh right. on everything else. Right. Um, if you can do that in a new way that people haven't seen before, and your writing you know, is part of the course, then... I think that you have a really good shot at it because they see that you can like come up with like new ideas or you can add um, new ideas to older ideas and make those ideas better. Right. A couple of managers I've spoken to um, like it and encourage it if their clients are both interested in working in film and television uh, and then a number of reps don't seem to care either way. Uh, what is your sort of take on that um, in terms of a writer seeking to work in both film and television or doesn't matter to you at all? I feel like more of what I see is a lot of writers who work in features uh-huh. now writing in television because um, or trying to break into the television game, as are a lot of producers who are only um, feature producers. Mm-hmm. They're now very much trying to get into television. I mean, that's an avenue that's pretty consistent. If you can sell a show, if you can write on a show, um, it's not like it's just one spec sale and whatever, you're on that for an elongated period of time. Not only are you doing that, but you're cultivating relationships in the writer's room with other, you know, executive producers that might hire you again in the future. Mm-hmm. And if that show doesn't happen to go or gets canceled, they're always looking for new shows, staffing up new writer's rooms and um, things like that. So, I don't know. I feel like I see a lot more transitioning from film to TV than mm-hmm. the other way around. Um, and I think it's smart. That being said, if any of my television clients um, wrote a feature, their television agent would be like, I don't understand why you're not writing another spec that I can put you in a room for. Right. So <laughs> it gets it gets a little bit tricky. It all depends, I suppose, on um, the person's personal goals. And, and talking about TV, a lot of staff writer positions are hired, you know, are hired from within that staff from the uh, writer's PA, writer's assistant, uh, showrunner's yeah. assistant. In terms of a writer aspiring TV writer who does, who's not in that position, how do you go about getting them in, you know, meetings with the showrunner, network meetings, getting them in a position to either develop a, a series or obviously get a position as a staff writer? Well, I think more like internally, mm-hmm. um, if they have other friends who are writers, a lot of, a lot of people like can have writers groups where, you know, they meet other writers that are already represented or can introduce them to someone that they know you know, in that field or whatever. I really think that it's important um, 
like I said, again, like the town is based on relationships. Sure. And so I think if you can join the writer's room um, or writer's group or whatever, and you have a lot of people working within that, I don't know, just cultivate the people that you know and the people that you believe in, I suppose. If a writer can get a job as a PA or as a coordinator for, um, you know, an executive producer of a TV show, because the town is based on relationships, usually that person comes with a very high, you know, referral or recommendation, which will really help the writer out if they have a great working relationship together. I don't think a lot of aspiring TV writers really understand the sort of hierarchy and the sort of logistics of a TV series, not realizing that, again, a, a good chunk of staff writing positions are just hired from in-house, sort of. From Yeah, 100%, because you have to go to work and see those people every single day. Absolutely. And they want to make sure that it's fun as well as creative. Yeah, and they understand the intricacies of the show. They know the show. They've worked on the show. They know the storylines that are in progress. They, they, they're they very familiar with the material, too. I think that's huge. Yeah, 100%. There's a level of trust, <laughs> 100%. And, uh, again, from talking to the, the writers, producers that we have, another th- huge thing is personality-wise. They know the personality of that individual. And, again, like you had mentioned, it's about relationships, and it's about being good in the room and they already know the dynamics of the room. They know what they should and shouldn't be saying as opposed to someone coming in off the street who has to sort of build these relationships. And you don't know what you're getting all the time. Um, someone yeah. pleasant in a meeting and all of a sudden in, in, you know, when they're, they're breaking a script or breaking the season, they're too talkative or not talkative enough. Or whereas with a, a writer's PA or writer's assistant or showrunner's assistant they've worked with for a season or longer, they understand what they're getting. Yeah. And you also get the opportunity to usually be on a lot mm-hmm. or in, you know, a production office where you're meeting people from other shows. You may be able to take them out for lunch one day. Who knows? Maybe yours gets canceled and theirs gets picked up and then you're up for an interview. I mean, the world works in mysterious ways. You just have to like, you know, push it a little. Absolutely. Now we're at a section of the podcast called Rapid Fire and it's some just fun, random, quick questions. There's no really right or wrong answer. The first being, which fellow former Columbia College uh, student, not alumnus, even though you are, since some of these folks didn't graduate, but which fellow former Columbia College student would make for the most interesting documentary subject? Uh, Wheel of Fortune host Pat Sajak, comedian Andy Richter, or rapper, fashion mogul, and Mr. Kim Kardashian, Kanye West? Oh, Kanye West. (laughs) Um, and you worked on The Dark Knight. In fact, I think that might be in the work. She's probably doing something like that. Yeah, probably. Um, and you worked on The Dark Knight. If you were a supervillain, which Batman would you most like to tangle with? Adam West, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, George Clooney, Christian Bale, or Ben Affleck? Um, I think Christian Bale. Okay. And finally, which is your favorite Frankie? Uh, the 1966 Elvis film, Frankie and Johnny, uh, Malcolm in the Middle actor, Frankie Muniz, or 1980s pop rock band, Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Relax. Don't do it. <laughs> nice. Um, and do you have any final thoughts or advice for all those aspiring screenwriters out there? Don't give up. It's always too early to quit. Really great talking to you, Frankie. I appreciate you coming on the show. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. And you can follow Frankie on Twitter at Miss Frankie L. That's Frankie, F-R-A-N-K-I-E-L. Uh, and check out Scooty Whoop online at ScootyWhoopEntertainment.com. I can constantly say Scooty Whoop and it just makes me smile every time. So that's 
Um, and if you have questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at scriptsandscribes.com or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>